Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It sure is great to be back on the air. I've missed uh, chatting with you guys, and I know many of you were beginning to wonder, as usual, after about a three or four day lull, when was Kirk going to come back on the air and share another one of his um, exciting podcasts? Well, the good news is that it is that it's right here, right now. But what's um, I don't know if, I don't know if the word exciting is the right word, but um, we do have something um, big in store, and that has to do with um, with the book topic series that we're currently discussing, Utah Springs: The Final Battle of the American Revolution Southern Campaign. The big news is that um, this podcast segment is going to be our final one for this uh, series, being the epilogue, and it has been a great series to say the least. I'm very pleased to see that many of you all have taken a great interest in uh, learning about Utah Springs, considering it was not one of the um, premier uh, battles that comes to uh, many people's minds. Uh, not only from the uh, Revolutionary War as a whole, but maybe from the Southern theater of the American Revolution. What I mean by the Southern theater is that the, it being the broader campaign. Of course, the battles that, that often came to my mind during the, um, the Southern uh, theater of the American Revolutionary War were uh, Guilford Courthouse and, of course, Yorktown. I think Yorktown would obviously probably be number one on the list of many people's uh, minds, given that all of us had been led to believe for a number of years that Yorktown was the last uh, major battle. While Yorktown, of course, did put an end to um, major hostilities, what people had forgotten was about this uh, battle that occurred uh, right before the siege of Yorktown began, being uh, Utah Springs, South Carolina. Other uh, battles of the Southern theater that come to my mind um, is being well um learned about or well uh, discussed, I should say, are the Siege of Charleston from 1780, uh, Camden, uh, Waxhaws, um, Cowpens, Kings Mountain, uh, just to name um, a handful of uh, battles uh, from the Southern Campaign. But nonetheless, I'm just very glad to know that all of you who have been, um, who have been listening to this uh, podcast topic series have gained uh, even more valuable information behind uh, not just the American Revolution as a whole, but really about this uh, forgotten uh, battle. I think it is fair to say, though, that there have been many forgotten aspects of the American Revolutionary War, not just from unsung heroes, but even to the smaller um, battles, the ones that, yes, were fought, didn't get the recognition that they deserved, but in the long run have um, gone about uh, being able to tell a better story behind why they took place, and what may have led from something small to something big. Because not all battles that were fought in the American Revolution were big battles. Yes, when I think of big battles, I think of, you know, the Yorktowns, I think of uh, Cowpens, uh, Guilford Courthouse, Kings Mountain, um, Bunker Hill, uh, Lexington Concord, uh, Trenton, Princeton. I mean, the list could go on and on. But we forget when we're dealing with smaller battles like not only Utah Springs in terms of the name and not just the name, but uh, but just the overall 
topic discussion when I think of battles that haven't gotten the most uh, widely um, debated on with um, discussion. Yes, Utah Springs comes to my mind. Uh, even Great Bridge, in uh, where we now know as uh, Chesapeake, Virginia, which um, where James Monroe and a handful of other uh, continental uh, soldiers uh, banded together to fight against Lord Dunmore's Ethiopian regiment back from uh, December of 1775. Other uh, smaller uh, battles, such as uh, Paoli in Pennsylvania, Believe it or not, I haven't really learned a whole lot about the the Paoli battle, but it probably should be something I ought to be um, ought to look into more. But the bottom line is, is that not every battle has to be um, a major battle. And what we've learned is that in South Carolina, there were far more smaller battles that led to uh, bigger skirmishes, such as Kings Mountain, Calpens, and perhaps Utah Springs. The same could be said for the siege at 96. Um, we could also say the same for um, Blackstock's uh, Creek, which was another uh, mid-level battle uh, where uh, Colonel Bannistray Tarleton was defeated for the first time. So oftentimes it's best to probably learn about the smaller battles and appreciate them for what they were, um, for what they were, and knowing that those smaller battles did give way to bigger battles, that um, that we not only know a great deal about, but can also appreciate, knowing that battles in general just don't happen overnight. They are more often than not a sheer case of uh, luck in terms of two sides coming together and to see who can outdo the other and whom can uh, control not only the coast, but perhaps a, a state's interior, which we've learned about here. So here we are discussing, um, for the final time, Utah Springs, the final battle of the American Revolution Southern Campaign by Robert M. Dunkerley and Irene Boland. So let's get prepared for our uh, leadoff question for this uh, final podcast segment. Is it fair to say that Utah Springs battle resulted in heavy casualties? Yes, the battle alone saw more men get killed and wounded compared to all other military engagements fought throughout South Carolina during the Revolutionary War. And yes, as we all know, uh, South Carolina had more battles fought than in the Revolutionary War than any other state. South Carolina saw more casualties. And so, it, to me, um, it is fair to say that after having read this book, that Utah Springs uh, battle, or the Battle of Utah Springs, did result in not only in just heavy casualties, but this battle alone did see more men get killed and wounded compared to other military engagements fought throughout uh, South Carolina, or what we know as the Palmetto State. Both armies altogether, folks, lost more than 1,200 soldiers on September the 8th of 1781. 1,200 soldiers. Well, General Green confirmed that 139 of his men were killed, 375 troops were in wounded status, and 8 troops missing. We add up all those numbers, and that comes out to 522. 522 being the number of American troop losses. 
The British, on the other hand, per Lieutenant Colonel Stewart, reported 85 troops killed to 351 uh, troops wounded and 275 troops missing. We add those numbers, we get 711. 711 um, British troops um, killed, wounded, or missing altogether. You know, as I said earlier, this wasn't the biggest of battles, but even the battles that were lesser known could uh, shed as much carnage and destruction as uh, compared to uh, battles that we uh, know a great deal of in terms of loss. When I think of uh, battles where uh, one side lost a great deal of men, but yet somehow emerged victorious. I think of I often think of Bunker Hill from uh, June of 1775, and how the British launched three three assaults up the hill. The Americans annihilated the British on two on the first two go rounds. The third was not meant to be, simply in part because we ran out of ammunition. The British finally were able to fix their bayonets and lead their assault on us. But they did it at a terrible price. They lost a quarter of their army, killed, wounded, just over a thousand men. You know, luckily we didn't have this kind of troop loss. But when you think about the overall grand scale of things and what goes into recruiting troops, and not only just recruiting them, but keeping them short and long term, especially on the American side, these losses do add up over time. And we probably should save room for talking about that more here in just a little bit. The American Army's casualty rate stood around 25%. Okay, quarter of your um, army is either killed or wounded. 25% is a lot. It might be fair to say that 25% alone could exceed what would have been the um, average norm. And I'm sure many of you are wondering, well, if 25% of the American of the American Army's uh, casualties stood around that number, then what should be the average norm? Well, before we get to that answer, how about let's find out just where British forces uh, stood in terms of casualty rate. If the American Army's casualty rate stood around 25%, and if we think that's bad, the British forces lost roughly 35%. It is fair to say that neither side got exempt from um, heavy casualty losses. But remember, folks, in the 18th century, battle, just fighting a battle alone, was just a stroke of luck. It was one of those things that uh, happened by chance. So we, are, we can say that, um, that if a casualty rate was less than 25%, then we are looking at what we call standard norms. But what exactly constitutes the standard norm if it's supposed to be less than 25%? Well, if bat battle casualty rates topped 10%, it was considered high. Okay, so we know that 25 and 35% each have, are exceeding, exceed well past the 10% threshold for casualties. But anything over 10% casualty threshold was beyond the standard norm of 18th century warfare. So 
anything less than or right at 10% was a standard norm for casualties. And is it fair to say largely because most battles in 18th century times lasted only 30 minutes to an hour? Yes. Remember, folks, how many hours did Utah Springs last? It exceeded one hour. It was three hours. So in three hours fighting, isn't it fair to say that you're going to, that there is a very, very strong likelihood that casualty rates will top 10%? Yes. Now, I, I know many of you are probably stunned to learn now that the American casualty rate was 25%, the British forces being 35%. I would have thought maybe after having read this the first time, or when I read it, um, I should say, I was surprised at these numbers, but then after realizing just how many hours this battle lasted, it doesn't come as a surprise. Something has to be different in each, in each conflict, and this was one of them. Never had there been any other battle where the casualty rates, to my knowledge, had topped 10%. I don't know, well, maybe with, well, with the exception of Bunker Hill. Because as I said earlier, the British lost a quarter of their army at Bunker Hill uh, six years earlier in June of 1775. So if you lost a quarter of your army, 25%. So there, there, are, there could be some lone exceptions, but those exceptions were just very unheard of. Now, prior to uh, the Utah Springs battle taking place on September 8th of 1781, when exactly was the most recent combat action between American and British field armies in the Southern Theater Campaign? I know that there had been some battles fought just before Utah Springs, but they weren't uh, what we would call uh, traditional um, open field uh combat style fighting. I do know back in the early spring of 1781 there was um, there were there was an engagement north of South Carolina in uh, North Carolina and while yes it was open field engagement there was um, irregular style uh, fighting that did take place. but as for the most recent combat action between American and British field armies, that occurred before September 8th of 1781, that would have been uh, six months earlier at Guilford Courthouse, North Carolina, in March. There was intense, it was an intense major battle, which had many makings that resembled what would follow six months later at Utah Springs. For those of you who were with me when we uh, discussed the podcast series, book series, um, To the End of the World, uh, General uh, Nathaniel Green, General Lord Charles Cornwallis, and the race to the Dan, meaning the Dan River, which uh, which is right along the Virginia-North Carolina line. Nathaniel Green's army was able to be preserved, although his um, although his army lost, they didn't sustain as many casualties as Cornwallis's forces did. Cornwallis had just shy of 400 men either killed or wounded. And of course, as I've said before, and I'd say it again, members of Parliament said that, if, that another Pyrrhic victory would, would pretty much uh, 
cost us everything in terms of funding what's what's left of this war another pyrrhic victory alone would uh, decimate our abilities in uh, raising um, additional troops to go 3,000 miles across the ocean uh, to continue this uh, fight that had no end in sight I don't know if those were all the exact words but one of the most uh, famous lines was another pyrrhic victory pyrrhic meaning costly so yes, uh, Guilford Courthouse um, was an intense battle, and knowing what I've learned from uh, Guilford Courthouse and what I've learned from uh, this battle at Utah Springs, lots of similarities in terms of uh, overall fighting that was uh, described as being uh, incredibly intense. The Utah Springs battle uh, became one of missed opportunities for commanders on both sides, General Greene faced hurdles in gathering Continental soldiers together to having them trained as well as seeing uh, militiamen come and go at all times. I mean, yes, he had an army that was ready to fight, but even in the midst or in the aftermath of this battle, the bigger questions were, Can I, do I still have another fight in me down the road? And if so, what is it going to take to keep those whom are still with me together for another round what is it going to take for me to find new recruits to replace those whose enlistments have already expired for lieutenant colonel stewart he had a limited number of men meaning every soldier he lost could not be replaced think about it folks he had limited supplies he was on borrowed time but of course it was beyond his control but remember, for every soldier he lost, he's not going to be able to replace. Whether it's the soldier has been killed or wounded, sick, um, taken prisoner. Control of um, South Carolina with troop numbers at hand, but not having any reinforcements, also um, hampered Lieutenant Colonel Stewart's ability to um, effectively win the battle altogether, whereas Lieutenant Colonel Stewart lacked reinforcements, the Americans, on the other hand, could replace their men faster than the British. Yes, the Americans can simply um, replace those whom have uh, died, but just because they have the means of replacing those men, it doesn't automatically mean that there's going to be enough men um, assembled over a short period of time to where an army will be back at full strength as it was from uh, a previous campaign being that of uh, Utah Springs. When an army or let alone an army unit first initiates an open field battle attack, will that corps of soldiers most likely endure more losses versus opposition holding a point of defense? This is something that we should um, really uh, ponder heavily about, folks. You know, it's one thing to go into an open battlefield. It's another thing to be on the battlefield and holding the line, holding your defense. Each side has a lot at stake. You've got the attackers. You've got the defenders. Who's going to be more vulnerable? What side's going to bore the brunt of heavy firing 
what side's going to have more opportunity to reload and refire. So is it fair to say that when an army or an army unit first initiates an open field battle attack, will that corps of soldiers most likely endure more losses versus the opposition holding their point of defense? Uh, the answer is yes. An attacker or set of attackers must be visible to their opponent. Okay, that, that would make sense. we got to know what we're firing at. But once an advancement begins, those troops will be forced into positions where firing and reloading can occur, or worse, no firing and become sitting ducks, a.k.a. open targets. So, yes, it's one thing to lead an attack, and you are going to be visible to your opponent. Nine times out of ten you will be, but there's always an opportunity where your opponent might not be visible, and you can um, launch a surprise attack on him. But once the advancement begins, yes, just about anything is possible. You're not, I mean, yeah, it's one thing to march in a straight line under heavy fire, but there's no guarantee that you're going to be standing still by the time you um, make it to the point where you, you can assemble and get ready to fire into the uh, defender's uh, court. There, A lot of things can obviously happen in a short period of time. You're, if you are firing, that's great. But if you're reloading, you know, you've got to be able to reload quickly in order to get back out on the field and fight. But just remember, there's no guarantee that you'll be able to even fire one shot. Normally, defenders can stay put in one place and fire multiple shots without repositioning. It would be fair to say that that, is the, that, that should be the utmost cardinal rule. However, at Utah Springs, the British spent more time in defense mode, leading to more casualties. To me, this is a strange coincidence at best. Hang tight here for just a moment. Well, I was really surprised at how... I was always under the impression when I read this book that the British were on the offense and that it was the Americans who were on the defense or on the defense. It turns out it was the other way around. That the British spent more... That the British were spending more time in defense mode, but the but the reason why they were um, enduring more casualties is because they couldn't rotate their troops. By the time they rotated their troops, it may have been too late. It wasn't because of ignorance, it was just because of how they were positioned. So just because you're in defense mode, it should mean, or it should mean that there's not always going to be an opportunity to have firm position in holding your point of defense. It doesn't always mean that you're going to be able to fire, be able to fire uh, faster than your opponent uh, will have time to uh, reload. Utah Springs was a non-planned battle engagement. For Lieutenant Colonel Stewart and his army, intense fighting around the brick house ultimately became Stuart's best chance to engage Green's, General Green's army up close and achieve potential victory. Like General Green, Lieutenant Colonel Stuart believed if he had more men that victory was within grasp. 
So both generals, or both officers, both commanding officers, I should say, firmly believed that they, if they had had more men, that victory was within grasp. I do believe that had it not been for the uh, brick house, that General Green's uh, men would have um, would have won. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. That brick house was the saving grace for the British. Had it not been for the brick house, those troops would have kept on retreating, retreating to the point of no return, to the point where you have to wonder, where is their ending point going to be? We had them on the cusp, but that brick house, that brick house where... Um, Major Henry Sheridan's um, New York and New Jersey Volunteers performed a coup d'etat um, action, and that is they fired on they fired mercilessly at American at the Americans, to where the Americans simply, even with their best intentions of having four and six uh, pieces of artillery, it just simply was not enough to overcome what had uh, been fired upon them. Well, what made the Utah Springs battle unique? For starters, the battle alone gave General Green an opportunity to select the time and place where engagement would occur. Not only did it give him the time and place for where this engagement would occur, but he also had the time to go about ordering his troops to the best preferable positioning spot. He had time to discuss battlefield tactical procedures. Another unique thing was that Nathaniel Green also had the means of controlling the speed of the overall battle. Very few generals had this uh, luxury. This wasn't something that, that General Green, you know, he didn't take for granted. But it was just a, a rare coincidence that this opportunity was bestowed upon him. Secondly, prior to September of 1781 and after Guilford Courthouse battle, from March of that year, General Green constantly spent time trying to gather new militiamen, including writing letters to state governors asking for further assistance. So even um, in the midst of uh, a couple of uh, consecutive defeats, Nathaniel Green is still returning to the offensive, and that is he's out there um, trying to recruit new uh, militiamen and uh, soldiers whom would become regulars or continentals. He's writing letters to state governors asking them for assistance. And when I think of assistance, it, we're talking about extra men. Uh, so, you know, for all we know, Nathaniel Green could be writing letters to governors as far north as Pennsylvania, uh, governors in um, New Jersey, Maryland, even Virginia. You know, think about it, folks. Thomas Jefferson's governor of Virginia. I mean, little does Jefferson know that in a few short months he's going to be, um, well, September of 1781, I take it back, uh, three months earlier, he was in the fight for his life in June of that year. Uh you know, for those of you who were with me when we talked about Jack Jewett's ride, uh, the ride that saved Virginia in the Revolutionary War, uh, had it not been for Jack Jewett's leadership, uh, Jefferson and other members of the uh, Virginia uh, government would have been uh, captured, taken hostage, maybe not just taken hostage, they would have been sent to England, tried for um, such offenses as treason, and they would have been uh, executed. 
Had the British gotten a hold of men like Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry and other noteworthy Virginians of the time, the American Revolutionary War would have more than likely come to an end. We wouldn't have been able to have uh, negotiated a, um, a hostage uh, crisis situation. Yes, it's one thing to be able to exchange prisoners based upon uh, their rank, but I highly doubt that we would have been able to have um, gotten uh, Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry in return because we wouldn't have had anybody that would have on the British side in terms of a prisoner that would have uh, been the equivalent to a Jefferson or a Henry. So, yes, for Nathaniel Green, he is constantly writing letters to governors from other states asking for further assistance in the form of bringing extra men into South Carolina whom are willing to fight. Because even for Green, you know, he can lose men. Yes, the Americans can, re can replace, but even for Nathaniel Green, it's a challenge still within his own circle to be able to find replacements. Simply, uh, to put it best, uh, Utah Springs for General Green was seen as a battle to end all further major hostilities within South Carolina. This alone, uh, Utah Springs was meant as, in Gen General Green's eyes, Utah Springs was the ultimate battle that that could drive the British out from the state's um, interior section. You know, Nathaniel Green, he wants the, the, the British out of South Carolina, but really the, the objective is for Green was to not only win this battle, but to um, see to it that the, that the interior section uh, remain in the hands of uh, the Americans. And, and he got that um, victory right there in the sense that the British never, um, in the aftermath of Utah Springs, they never attempted again to invade the um, to invade the uh, inland um, regions of South Carolina, being well past um, the coastlines of what we now know as uh, Charleston. Now, is it fair to say that both sides claimed victory at Utah Springs? Yes, uh, the British claimed victory on the grounds that they maintained the field or I should say the terrain around the brick house, including the road or the path that uh, led towards Charleston. But due to weakened lines, they were forced to uh, retreat back to their base. And as I said before, I'd say it again here, the brick house was the savior from complete defeat. But prior to the onslaught against the Americans at the brick house, British troops felt the brunt of the American frontal assault attacks. The second part to, the, to this question pertains to the American side. The Americans claimed victory by seizing British artillery, driving enemy troops back, accessing their camp, to capturing large numbers of prisoners, but despite success on the battlefield from September 8th of 1781, General Greene could not form another attack like Utah Springs, even with troop reinforcements from Pennsylvania. So yes, Nathaniel Greene got his wish and that he got some more troop reinforcements, but even these reinforcements alone are not going to be enough to muster another attack down the road that would bear 
resemblance to what just happened at Utah Springs. Lieutenant Colonel Stewart's choice behind uh, withdrawing was not seen as a defeat, given they mustered up enough determination behind turning away an enemy, or let alone, I should say, behind turning away enemy forces in the midst of surprise attack within their camp. The retreat was necessary to avoid further losses on top of what already occurred. Without a brick house, the American victory all the more assured. It's fair to confirm or rule that both armies fought above and beyond at Utah Springs, given neither side per document letter reports admitted to being completely defeated. Multiple accounts per individual soldiers revealed hand-to-hand -hand fighting with such items from clubbed muskets, bayonets, to swords. I can't imagine going up against a British soldier, and that British soldier already having his bayonet fixed. I'm not afraid to back away from the fight, but just knowing that all it would take is one strike, one dagger of the bayonet to get me 18 inches, folks. This isn't some dinky little... Um, little um, mechanism on the rifle, 18 inches, folks, of pain could take you out. And remember, folks, you know, it's, it's one thing to, to have that bayonet on your rifle, but that was meant to scare the army away, the opposition, when the opposition was so completely dismantled to the point where the bayonet was the final means of driving the enemy into a further disarray. Utah Springs broke soldiers on an individual level. Lieutenant Colonel William Washington spent the rest of the Revolutionary War as a prisoner. Okay, he's in enemy hands, folks. The British, Lieutenant Colonel Washington, came to be seen as a prize. Each side lacked an officer of equal rank or status. So remember, folks, it's one thing to... Um, have conducted a prisoner exchange, but you're not releasing someone just because he's on good behavior. That could be one of the reasons why you might release him, but it's not the ultimate re ultimate reason. Okay, let's say the British have two colonels and a um, and a major. Let's say the British have um, two colonels and a major. That is of American prisoners. The Americans have a colonel and a lieutenant colonel, and let's say they have a, um, a major as well. Can an exchange take place? It's possible, but a lieutenant colonel on the American side, in terms of a British, British prisoner and a British having a colonel of an American... It is possible, because it, the ranks are just one level apart. If all we had were three corporals, three British corporals, and the British had three American lieutenant colonels, a prisoner exchange isn't going to happen, largely because lieutenant colonels have higher ranking status than corporals. So because the British and the Americans at this point do not have an officer of equal rank or status. Lieutenant Colonel William Washington remained 
continues to remain as a prisoner, and that status stayed that way until December 14th of 1782. Being the date that the British evacuated the city, he got released. And believe it or not, folks, Lieutenant Colonel William Washington, who was George Washington's cousin, remained in South Carolina after being released. He um, fell in love with a um, with the lady. They married, and um, they they spent the rest of their lives in South Carolina. And he is buried um, right around the um, confines of Charleston. Now, given uh, the Yorktown siege and the uh, battle helped determine the Revolutionary War's outcome on a larger um, national scale, why did Utah Springs become overlooked? I often wondered about that myself. How could this battle have been overlooked, knowing what we know now, that it was the final battle of the American Revolution's Southern Campaign? Well, I will have to admit that History, that, that there are um, segments of history that do get overlooked, and that's not always a good thing, regardless of um, the matter at stake. Well, for one, Utah Springs didn't produce a clear-cut winner, unlike the American um, battle victories at Cowpens, Kings Mountain, Blackstock's Creek, just to name a few of the well-known battles in South Carolina that occurred before Utah Springs. But secondly, uh, most Americans in the years after Utah Springs, and given what they had, were starting to learn about this battle, most Americans were unable to discover the true heroes whom emerged uh, totally victorious. I would have thought that uh, most Americans would have said that Nathaniel Green, um, given just how brilliant of a general he was, should have emerged victorious. I would have thought so, but they just didn't see it didn't see it that way at that time. Third, uh, given the battle didn't have a true victor, and stories began to emerge reporting um, of uh, American activity that in the eyes of the people whom um, interpreted this, they learned that the Americans had looted at the British camp. And because they learned that the Americans looted at the British camp, it gave way to negative images which Americans weren't looking for. But yet, many Americans failed to understand that, that the looting which took place in the British camp at Utah Springs, that this looting that went on was not um, out of selfishness or greed. In other words, the American soldiers who came into the camp they weren't saying to each other, hey, look, you see that prized, valuable possession that, the, that such and such uh, British soldier probably left outside of his tent? Let's go take that. No. For many of these men, not many of them, if, if not all of them who made their way into the camp, they are exhausted. You know, we're looking at 90-degree weather, folks, as I've said before from previous podcasts. We don't have Aquafina bottled water. We don't have Gatorade. There's no Powerade. There's no Red Bull energy drinks, and we don't have um, we don't have three days of food on us either, too. So, given with all the disarray that's at this camp, and that the lines have come apart, it is fair to say that okay, given that we had gotten the enemy on the run, 
scared out of their wits. We are near the point where, where we've got them in such a bad stranglehold that they may not want to fight. But now we have a moment to recuperate, rest, and take stuff as a means of survival. I guess it's fair to say that um, that Americans at this uh, generation's past came to view Yorktown as a battle that was high and mighty on its own pedestal simply because Washington's men could not have done anything wrong. They were able to, um, along with the French, they were able to block uh, Cornwallis's escape routes to the Chesapeake Bay. They just did everything that was told of them to do, and while all that was admirable, it is unfortunate that what had taken place just before the siege of Yorktown began got overlooked. Not just overlooked for one generation, but for a couple of generations. As South Carolina, um, along with the rest of America, progressed into the start of the 19th century, South Carolina, by the first quarter of the 19th century, uh, saw immense prosperity. And when I think of immense prosperity during the first quarter of the 19th century, I think of uh, James Monroe's uh, presidency from 1817 to 1825, which was marked as the era of good feelings. You know, the Erie Canal is officially opened um, for transportation uh, purposes in 1825. It was opened in different um, segments, but by 1825, it is completely connected from the uh, Hudson uh, River in New York City all the way to uh, Buffalo, New York. But even before the, uh, the era of good feelings under James Monroe, you have um, Thomas Jefferson's presidency, Jefferson being the first president to take the oath of office at the start of the 19th century in March of 1801. A few, a few years afterwards, uh, the Lewis and Clark expedition begins, the Louisiana Purchase, which doubled the size of, of the United States. So there is a lot of uh, prosperity taking place in the first quarter of the 19th century, and South Carolina is seeing it. Believe it or not, through means of roads, canals, railroads to growing towns. I was really surprised by canals because when I think of canals, I tend to think of them during the 19th century as being uh, built in the northern states where there are more, where there's more of a, a faster growing population than in the south. But in South Carolina, there are canals during the first quarter of the 19th century. So I think it, it is definitely fair to say that canals are not confined to just uh, one region of America. But come the 1840s, well-to-do families started constructing homes near Utah Springs uh, Battlefield site. The homes that were being built were built back from the river and above the marshland, which became what we know today as Utahville. Some people may say Utahville, but I call it uh, Utahville. And it was founded on um, better high ground, not far from the springs. So this leads me to the next question to ask you all. Whatever happened to the actual springs at Utah Springs? Well, during the start of the 1940s, the federal government began flooding the Santee River to help generate hydroelectric power, part of greater uh, progress efforts in bringing electricity to rural areas which in turn helped establish Lake Marion. 
Now, when I think of uh, bringing electricity to rural areas uh, during the early years of uh, FDR's presidency, Congress did enact a piece of legislation called the Rural Electrification Act. And when I learned about how uh, the Santee River got flooded to generate hydroelectric power and this resulting in bringing electricity to rural areas, I thought of that uh, piece of legislation. I can't tell you just how many times I've uh, driven past uh, Lake Marion when my family and I have gone to Hilton Head, South Carolina. It's a it's a very nice lake. As a matter of fact, the lake is so big that it uh, it's not confined to one county. It's uh, you, Lake Marion is surrounded by five counties. Uh, I want to say Sumter County is one of them. Um, Orangeburg, uh, Dorchester, Colleton. And, you know, I wished I knew what the other one was. I, I know that's not good. Here I'm trying to name the counties, and now I, I can't tell you the fifth one. But the bottom line is Lake Marion is, is very big, and, it, and it's um, in five counties. Five counties um, surround uh, the waters of Lake Marion. And I bet most of you probably know for whom Lake Marion is named after. Named after Revolutionary War General Francis Marion. For those of you who were with me um, a few years back when I was first doing these uh, podcast series, we talked about John Aller's uh, The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution. For those of you who have not read that book, I strongly recommend reading it. And if you are new to my podcasts, uh, feel free to uh, check out that uh, podcast series. But uh, yes, Lake Marion is named for Revolutionary War General Francis Marion, uh, known as The Swamp Fox. And the reason he was called the Swamp Fox was because of how elusive he was. I want to say it was Colonel Banastray Tarleton who gave uh, Francis Marion the nickname Swamp Fox because no matter how far into the woods Tarleton chased, tried chasing Marion, Marion was so elusive that Tarleton could never chase the fox out of the swamp. In other words, he could never fully find a way to lure Marion out of out of the uh, furthest hiding grounds to where he could ultimately become caught and taken prisoner by the enemy. Utah Springs, though, lies 20 feet below from the flooding, which created Lake Marion. The Utah Springs battlefield was spared from the flooding but did not fully escape the wrath of commercial housing build-up dating back to the 1960s. So I'm beginning to wonder just how many acres are preserved from this battle. Why was 1936 important? Well, Congress in 1936 approved funds for building the Utah Springs Battlefield site. A War Department commission went about studying the site and favored preservation, despite given where the battle took place, being along an area considered remote and rural. The commission found the battlefield, the key roads, fields to woods, forests, all intact. All of that's great, folks, but believe it or not, no action was taken for preservation purposes. You know, politics Politics is tricky. It's also a little bit dirty. You get promised something and then it doesn't go through. Something else supersedes uh, a project that you are 
desperately trying to uh, secure the money for, not just for short-term but long-term purposes. Public works projects like the Santee Cooper Power Plant ended up taking greater precedent over Utah Springs. Well, eventually, the state of South Carolina did set aside a couple of acres for uh, Utah Springs. That might seem like a good start, but I often wondered, could more have been done? Yes. But there is good news to report. Despite housing development in the 1960s, over the course of time, most notably in 2001 and again in 2008, Teams of archaeologists visited the Utah Springs battlefield site and uh, conducted many uh, findings. One of their findings determined that the battle took place west of the Memorial Park and that the battlefield still remained on solid ground. That's a sigh of relief right there. The survey uh, conducted confirmed findings from fired to dropped musket balls around vital areas, such as the brick house. The brick house's foundation was still found intact, but the rest of the house uh, disintegrated over time. As a matter of fact, a lot of the historians and archaeologists aren't really sure what happened after the original owners of the brick house uh, passed away. Additional tests proved that the Utah Springs battle ex extended up to present-day intersection where South Carolina State Route 6 and Highway 45 meet up. June 5, 1970, 52 years ago, the Utah Springs Battleground Park was added to the National Register of Historic Places. But in more recent years, the American Battlefield Trust which is a nonprofit historic land preservation group. And I subscribe to their magazines. Uh, they do quarterly magazines, and they do a phenomenal job. For any of you avid history buffs out there who would like to uh, learn more about uh, historic preservation, um, I strongly recommend uh, going through the American Battlefield Trust. This group has gone about saving more They've gone about saving a lot of um, acres in general of uh, land that needs to be preserved, not just for present day generation, but for future generations, but land that um, where battles had been fought, not just from the American Revolution, but from the Civil War, as well as the War of 1812. Utah Springs, believe it or not, folks, is one of the... Um, American Revolutionary War battles where um, the American Battlefield Trust has taken an active role in um, preserving acres or acreage. Believe, believe it or not, um, the American Battlefield Trust has gone about saving more than 14 acres at Utah Springs Battlefield. To me, that is an incredible um, blessing. And I have no doubts that they might be able to try to preserve more acres. 14 acres may not seem like a lot, but to me that is a, an assurance that present and future generations will not forget those uh, will not forget the sacrifices that were made um, by General Nathaniel Green's men on September 8th of 1781, 241 years ago. 
Now, when the American Battlefield Trust first got started uh, 35 years ago, back in 1987, hard to believe I I was 8 years old back then. I don't know where the time has gone, but yeah, 35 years ago, on one hand, it seems like a long time, but in actuality, it's, um, it's not. But when it was first, when this uh, group was first established, it was referred to as the Civil War Trust. But luck, but fortunately, over time, they uh, reinvented themselves to where they uh, felt it was necessary to do more than just Civil War preservation in terms of uh, battlefield preservation. The primary focus of the American Battlefield Trust uh, centers upon preservation of battlefields from the Revolutionary War, War of 1812, and the American Civil War. Utah Springs is one of 73 American Revolutionary War um, battlefield sites that have been preserved. And the American um, Battlefield Trust folks has saved 55,000 acres of of battlefield um, land in 24 states. And they're not through, and they shouldn't be, because they have a mission, a broad mission, to educate the greater public. And the organization does so by placing a heavy emphasis on educating the public about what happened on the battlefield, or rather on a battlefield, and why it still matters today. Does it matter that, that there was a battle fought just before Yorktown began? Yes. Does it matter that Utah Springs truly does deserve to be, um, officially deserves to have the title of the following, the final battle of the American Revolution Southern Campaign? Yes. Now, one thing I will admit that the American uh, Battlefield Trust did, and it's not my place to tell them differently, I personally believe that this battle was a draw. But I don't believe that you could uh, leave on a historical marker that that the battle ended in a draw. Somebody had to win, and somebody ended up having to lose. But the American Battlefield Trust declared the winner of the victor of this battle as the British. And I know why they did. I've said it before, I'd say it again. The British were in full retreat. Americans had them. But the British were able to seek shelter via the brick house. The brick house was the saving grace. Not just the brick house, but the barn and the palisaded um, garden. The British had all. Um, the British had all had multiple um, outlets for firing on the Americans. Yes, the British may have sustained more loss. The British may have sustained more men wounded than the Americans, but it was that final push, thanks to Major uh, Henry Sheridan and for uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart, who was able to get uh, men who were on the run for their lives back into um, fighting mode to launch one more uh, repulsive attack to launch one more uh, assault, maybe I should say, on the Americans. And because they did that, it's probably fair to say in the end, as much as I would not want to say it, but I would have to admit that that the British probably did win that battle because of what had taken place at the Brick House, the barn, and the Palisaded Garden. But Nathaniel Green's forces fought valiantly. 
And we must remember that freedom is not free. We must remember the sacrifices that were made. Not just from the time the first shots were fired around the world, but even as 1781 was coming to an end. Although Green's forces didn't emerge as the victor, they were able to uh, force the British back to Charleston, and eventually the British left Charleston to where South Carolina once and for all was back in American hands. The British only had uh, two other places, Savannah, Georgia, New York City, as um, cities within, within full 100% control of their domain. Fortunately for Nathaniel Green, everywhere else in South Carolina was in, British, was in American hands, despite losing at Utah Springs. Battles like these don't come around that often, but when they do, you don't leave anything on the table to chance. And for Nathaniel Green, this was his last stand. Without Nathaniel Green, without his leadership, being that he was at the right place at the right time, I don't believe that the um, Americans would have been able to have kept the British as long as they um, were able to keep them in the Carolinas. But by the time General uh, Lord Charles Cornwallis arrived into Virginia, his army was not the same army as it was in the early parts of 1780 when they were cruising at full altitude, defeating the Americans at the Siege of Charleston, Waxhaws, Camden. But all of that changes just before Green's, before Green's arrival in late 1780 when, um, when we win at King's Mountain. But with Nathaniel Green's arrival, it's an extra spark that's needed, given that the cause for that the cause for independence is on its um, last leg. It does pay to have a mentor like George Washington. Nathaniel Green had the right mentor, the right mission. It's just a shame that one more battle was all one more battle was what he needed to secure that um, slam dunk. The Americans were victors, the British surrendered, but Utah Springs must never be forgotten. So for those of you driving uh, down uh, south to South Carolina, like on your way to Charleston or Hilton Head, if you see signs for Utahville, think of Utah Springs. You can go to the uh, park. I've never been. But when I go down that way next time, I'm going to make it a priority to go so that I can um, make sure to uh, pay tribute to those who were willing to sacrifice their lives so that future generations like us in the present can live in freedom. Thank you for your time and thank you for being a part of this uh, series. Um, it was a great one. I look forward to being back on the air with you all next. And when I'm on the air, we're going to continue um, our mission our mission of learning about history, that while, yes, we know segments or pieces of, we're going to be learning stuff that we didn't know before about something of uh, historical importance. I don't know where our uh, mission will take us next, but it will be good. I promise you. So let's keep this time machine going, because if we let it, if we let it die, what do we have left uh, to learn? Thank you for your time, and stay safe.